Again, thank you for the opportunity to be here. It's always a great pleasure to open the Word. And uh, we'll be looking at Zechariah 9. Um, it's been a couple of months since we preached Zechariah 8, and uh, I sure you all remember perfectly what was being said. But uh, I did uh, put in, uh, as I uh, outlined, that I used at the beginning just to kind of remind uh, where we are. It uh, starts with an introductory call to repentance and then eight visions that really picture God being with his people in their lowliness. God was with them. And then the next two chapters, seven and eight, dealt with a couple of uh, contemporary issues. And the focus was on the people are truly to be seeking God. And then I'm excited. This is my excited face for those who don't know me yet. <laughs> I'm really excited about this last section of Zechariah because it talks about the suffering servant. So it's pointing us to Jesus Christ. And if we don't see Jesus Christ, these last chapters of Zechariah, we're not understanding what the book is all about. In fact, if you were to say, what portion of scripture is quoted most often during the final week of Jesus' life, from his entrance into Jerusalem until his resurrection, it's Zechariah, this portion of Zechariah. So it's repeatedly being quoted by the gospel writers as a being fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Uh, so with that, let's uh, turn our attention to, to Zechariah uh, chapter 9. The burden of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus as its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, shall rise in anguish. Akron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. And mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and it will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God, and shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a garden, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for I see with my own eyes. Rejoice gladly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the foal of a donkey. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, the prisoners of hope. Today I declare I will restore to you double. For I bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones and shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as a flock of his people. For like the jewels of crown, there shall shine on his land. For how great is the goodness and how great is beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine, the young women. I trust you uh, saw the, the sermon title. Have no fear of disturbing news. And perhaps as you came here, you were thinking, well, that's a nice thought, Pastor. But you need to be realistic. You need to take a, a look at what's going on around us. Shooting at a Christian school in Tennessee, the continuing war in Ukraine, the economy with inflation being so bad, you see it every day. You go to the grocery store or pump your gas. There's rapid crimes in the streets. You have the culture wars, battles over abortion, over transgendered rights, over gay rights. And perhaps there's something unsettling in your life. The doctor has just told you you have cancer. And the prognosis is not good. Or you've been laid off from your job. Or maybe it's something more of an interpersonal relationship. You have a, a rebellious child. It's causing you heartache. Or you know that your marriage is in trouble. Perhaps it's more emotional. Loneliness and isolation. There's a lot going on that's attributed to isolation due to COVID. The breakdown and incivility between people. And the estimates now that uh, 
25% of people are going to die alone. No longer surrounded by loving family members. Because too many have been divorced. Too many decided not to have children. Too many never got married. You wonder about what's going on in society and where we're headed. As you see the breakdown of the family, the breakdown of morality, the violence in the inner cities, racism, real or implied. In the last year, math has been said to be racist. Private property is racist. Hard work is racist. And how do we deal with a culture that says those things? If you look honestly at what's going around us, shouldn't you be discouraged, even alarmed, as you look at the present condition and then you begin to imagine what's going to take place down the road? What will our children and grandchildren be facing? Well, we need to realize that we're not the first generation that has faced difficult situations. It was true in Zechariah's day. The problems they were facing seemed to be overwhelming, and we already mentioned them. There was a a complacency among the people. There was an active opposition by the neighboring uh, countries and, and cities. The task of rebuilding seemed daunting. There were few resources and fewer people. The city at that time was defenseless. They had no walls, no way of defending themselves. But the message of Zechariah 9 is that the Lord of hosts, the God of Abraham, is coming to help his people. And therefore, there's no reason for anxiety. There's no reason for fear. Now or in the future, God is the God who is over history in all times, in all places, and he is accomplishing his sovereign purposes. And what was true in Zechariah's day, what was true in the first century, is still true today. That God works all things for the good of his people. And so our response is not to be overwhelmed by fear, but is first to worship God, to worship Christ, and look with hope at the future, to look in faith, trusting what God will do. And so the first point we need to see as we look at the, this chapter, it begins in with verse 1 with the burden of the word of the Lord. That word burden means heavy load. And it naturally calls to bind some, someone or something that's, that's carrying a heavy load. You know, a slave that is forced to carry a big burden or a donkey that has a, too much on its back. It's weighed down. And then what's used in the Bible to describe the word of God, it means something that's heavy, hard to hear. Usually a word of judgment. And here it is, 
Judgment not on God's people, but on the enemies of God's people. And so the chapter really deals with those enemies and what God is going to do with them. And it's future looking and saying, in that time, a future time, some of it will be a couple hundred years in the future. Some of it will be 300 years. And some of it will be in the time of Christ. But God is controlling those things. And the point that we need to see is that God's character does not change. God's power does not change. God's compassion for his people does not change. And so what it was in Zechariah's day, what it was like in the first century is still the same. God will keep his people and provide for them and protect and ultimately bring them into his heavenly kingdom. And we can trust that. B, we can also see that the, the judgment is are, that are listed here begins with Israel's near neighbors. Now, they have two great neighbor, uh, enemies uh, that are often referred to in Scripture, Babylon and Egypt. But here, it's those nations that are close by. And he, he starts listing them he starts in the north along the west coast of the, of the nation of Israel and names them off. And those were the enemies that were there every day, every month, every year troubling Israel. They could easily come one day and attack. They didn't have to make a long trip. And so Hadrach and Damascus in the far north, Hamath, which is right on the border with Israel, Tyre and Sidon along the coast, and it goes down to the cities of the Philistines. And in Zechariah's days, these cities and nations would have been formidable because of their weakness, because the city was unfortified, didn't have any walls. The Jews were unprotected. But the point of the chapter is at the right time, God is going to judge those cities and those nations. And we could look at each one and see how they were judged, but I want us to focus on Tyre. It's the one that receives the, the most attention. It's highlighted in verses 2 and 3. And ancient Tyre would have been known for its pride that it took in its wisdom its wealth, and its power. And those are referred to in these verses. It was, you know, it's very wise. It built a, a rampart, a, a defensive protection there in verse 3. Uh, in verse 3, silver was like dust and gold, like the mud of the streets. They had abundant wealth. And in ancient times, that city of Tyre was considered impeccable. You couldn't attack it. And he had a series of attacks on it. There was an old city that was on the shore, but then they built a new city out on an island that was half, half a mile into the ocean. And they put a protective wall around it. 
And that wall was 150 feet tall. And because of all the wealth, kings would want to come and attack it, but they would fail. The Assyrians, in 722, they come and take the northern kingdom captive. Well, where did they head? Well, they wanted to go right next to that city, Tyre, and attack it. And so for five years, they attacked the city and couldn't conquer it and withdrew in defeat. Later on, the Babylonians come and they conquer the southern kingdom. And it becomes more, no more, at least for a while. And you have King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's looking around for what are some other places to conquer, and what does he decide? He decides he's going to attack Tyre. And so he attacks it. He spends 15 years attacking the city. Now he's able to break in and level the old city. But the new city out in the island with a wall that was 150 foot high was able to continue on. And as they became more and more a trading partner, they, they became richer and richer. I wonder if we have a, a country like that today that nobody could attack and conquer. Well, the fourth thing is we need to see about these uh, what's going on here in these enemies is the big picture. And it's found there in verse 4 with that word, behold. The Lord will. And notice it's not Lord in all capitals, which is a specific name of God that means the covenant God. This is the, one, the term that's used to, to give the sense of God, the all-powerful one. Behold the Lord. And what is he going to do? He's going to reverse the fortunes of Tyre. He's going to bring it down. And ultimately, he uses a man, a king, coming against them. But it's ultimately, we need to see God who's doing it, who raises up one nation and, and lowers another. And how was Tyre conquered? Well, God used a young man. He was only 22 years old at the time. He had no navy with which attacked this city. He couldn't even reach it. And he had what was considered a relatively small army, about 35,000 soldiers. His name we know as Alexander the Great. His ultimate goal is to conquer the great powers of the world, which were Egypt, and then over there, uh, sort of in Babylon, Persia. And Tyre's on his way. And so what does he do? 
He takes all that rubble that Nebuchadnezzar left behind and makes a causeway out to the island. Pushes it into the sea, makes it 200 feet wide. And then he's able to get to the city walls and break in and conquer it. The city that they thought couldn't be conquered, he conquered. Now, as a conqueror, he was uh, pretty strict in his judgments. Cities that would would resist him or nations. And so it was in this case, uh, 75% of, of Tyre went into slavery. Those who weren't killed, he often increased his army by conscripting soldiers in. And so as he wants to go down, he heads down through the, the area of, Palace, of, of the Philistines. And so we have there also in those first six verses the cities that, are, that fall one after another to him. And he conquers Egypt. But God's in control. God is the one that is removing Israel enemies, the enemies of his people. The second point to to see is that God surrounds his people and protects them in time of distress. You can see that in verse 7 and 8. He does so really in two ways. First, in verse 7, I will take away its blood from its mouth, those pagan cities, its abominations from its teeth. What's that talking about? Well, abominations used uh, typically in the Old Testament to talk about the idols and the, and the gods and, and how they destroy. And these na- uh, nations, idolatrous nations, are going to be destroyed. He does it uh, in a couple of ways. One is by completely removing them, and there's a reference to them becoming uninhabited. But there's a second way that God changes things. And so it talks about how they become like a clan in Judah. Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. And the Jebusites were those who, who lived in Jerusalem, who weren't conquered until the time of David, and they weren't completely killed off were allowed to intermarry and become part of Israel. And the point that's being made in that verse is that one of the things that God does is be uh, destroying people is converting people. Changing them from being those who are in opposition to those who are you know, worshiping idols into believers. And some would flee to Israel for protection and become part of it. I think of a Chinese man that I met over. Uh, he was part of the radical Red Guards, a leader in that. Back in 1966 to 76. And what's he doing now? 
Well, he's converted. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the reformed faith. What he sought to destroy is a young man. Now he's advocating for it. Just like the Apostle Paul did. An encouragement is that God can take someone who's bitterly opposed to Christianity and change them completely. Do we think in those terms? I've been asked a couple of times, should we pray for the death of Putin? Or the death of Xi? My answer is no, we should pray for their conversion. Can we pray for the conversion of President Biden? Surely. B, we can say the second uh, God promises I will encamp at my house as a guard. He's going to be around his temple and he's going to protect it. And by extension, we can say he's going to be around his people as we're now scattered over the face of the earth. Whether you're in Russia and China, Africa, or the United States, I didn't tell you the end of the story with Alexander the Great. As he was going to to conquer Tyre, one of the things he did was send messengers to this little country nearby to Israel and say, hey, come help me. Supply what I need. And the response of Israel was, no. We're trusting the Babylonians who are under under their control. Persia, really, at that point. They're going to protect us. And so after he conquers Egypt, where is he headed? Well, he's headed to Persia, the last great power. And what's right in the middle of his path? There's this little nation with this little city, Jerusalem. So he comes bent on attacking it. And when he gets to the city, they've opened the gates and become defenseless. Everybody is is dressed in white, which even back then was the color of surrender. And the high priest comes out in his garments. And all his generals are expecting him to Take a sword and kill the high priest. But what does he do? He gets off his horse and bows down to the high priest. And his generals later ask him, Why did you do that? 
was so out of character. And he said, last night, I had a dream, and I saw that very same man coming out to me. And I was bowing down to him. And he spared the city and went on to attack Persia. The big picture at verse 8 is, I will encamp. God surrounds his people. The enemies may be strong, the circumstances may be horrible that we face. Our ability to resist may be very limited. But God surrounds us like a guard. And that truth is still the same. All things are still working for good to those Love God. Their third point as we go on to verses 12 to 17, does God, God does amazing things through his people. Maybe we should personalize that. You can expect God to do great things through you if you're a believer. Look at verse 12, the promise I will restore double. These are to prisoners, prisoners of hope. Usually prisoners don't have very much hope. But as they would hope and trust in God, he promises to give them double. And Israel would look back to the time of David and Solomon as a great time in the, in the history of the, the nation. Uh, there were great prosperity. And God is going to do more. And notice, it's God who says, I will declare that I will. God is personally involved. And not so much in terms of promising you know, there'll be more gold than in the time of Solomon. But the spiritual prosperity. That there'll be bounty for their souls. That they will have a strong relationship with God. And then B, as you look at verse 13, is a picture of a warrior. God is a warrior going out to battle. And what are the weapons that he uses in the spiritual battle going on now? Well, his bow, his Judah, and his arrows are Ephraim, his people. And so as we think about the battle that would rage around us, the spiritual battle, you and I are what God uses. And how does, he, how does he use this? To stand firm. And you may notice that at the end of uh, 13, it mentions Greece. Now, that's pretty unusual because at this point, Greece, in terms of world history, was sort of a little nothing country back there. It was not a nation that people took reference to. 
wouldn't be until much later when Alexander hit the scenes that becomes a world power. But it's talking about God's people, Zion, fighting against Greece. And when did that happen? Well, it was 100 years after Alexander the Great. He didn't fight against them. He bypassed them and went on to Persia. But as this kingdom was divided, it was divided into four parts and one that was controlled one of the kings that came along wanted to make Israel just like all the rest of Greece. And so he set, set out to do that. He wanted to Hellenize the country. He made Greece, uh, Greek the official language. He wanted them to worship the, the Greek gods. He knew that the, the temple worship was a problem. He took the, the statue of Zeus into the temple. He brought along a bunch of pigs and sacrificed pigs in the temple. Well, that led to an armed revolt. Battle between this great empire of the Greeks and this little ragtag group called the Maccabees. There were five brothers. And Maccabees means hammer. Five hammers. They were a hammer of God. And waged war. Guerrilla warfare. And they won. Not without cost, all five of the brothers died along the way. But the point was that the temple was restored. And who would come along a little bit later to that cleansed and restored temple? It was Jesus Christ. That temple was now ready for the Messiah to come. As they undid all that the Greek king was trying to do. And you see the big picture again here in verse 16. On that day, the Lord, and this time it's the covenant name of God, the Lord their God will save them. It wasn't because the Maccabees were so strong or had better weapons or or you know, had good strategies. But it was because of the Lord their God. And we too are preserved, kept safe, not because of our holiness, our wisdom, but because the Lord is our God. And over the centuries, God has used his people in very remarkable ways to end slavery to see the gospel go to China and other parts of the world, to improve conditions for women and for children in so many more ways as the gospel impacts lives and through it the society. And the fourth point is why does God do all this? 
Well, the answer is in verses 9 through 11. It's for the sake of his king and his covenant love. Verses 9 and 10 point us to the king. Verse 11 points us to his covenant love. And it's often true with Hebrew poetry that the key idea is found in the middle. And here it is. It is highlighted by that word behold. Second time in the chapter. Behold, what are we to take notice of? What's important? What should we not lose sight of? Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now I trust that these verses are very familiar to you because they're quoted in Matthew and they're quoted in John when Jesus makes his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He is the one that comes fulfilling all this. He's a very specific king. He's not like Alexander that's going and conquering nations by force. But he's humble. He's righteous. And he has salvation. He's not a king that uses force, but a servant king, a king who serves. And notice the size of his kingdom. Even Alexander, when he was at the full extent of his kingdom and wondering what other nations there were to, to conquer, was not like this. His kingdom is from sea to sea, and from the river, and that would be the river Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. And we've seen that during this church age, as we've seen the gospel go to all parts of the world. And so it's quoted in Matthew and John as they see this as being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And in verse 11, because of the blood of my covenant with you. Because of what Jesus has accomplished and established the covenant by his blood. And I think of the Lord's Supper. As we raise the cup. This is the covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. What do you think of applications? Uh, first, just remind you in verse 9, we're called to rejoice, O daughter of Zion. God's people are to rejoice, to celebrate. We're to be aware of our circumstances, but we're not to be overwhelmed by it. We're to be overwhelmed by the fact that God is in control. That whatever happens, he's directing it for the good of his people. And we can count on that. We can count on it today, tomorrow, and in the future. Things may look bleak. But Jesus Christ is still sitting on the throne. 
And so we should be trusting in him. What's Jesus doing right now? Well, one of the things he's doing is praying for his people. So he's praying for you. He's praying for me. But he's also subduing all of his and our enemies under his feet. Every enemy will be overcome. And Paul reminds us that the last great enemy is death. Each one is going to be conquered by Christ. Third, I encourage you to to pray for conversions, to see enemies become part of the people of God. Have you go home and just think about it. Is there somebody that you should be praying for? That you might say, boy, they're wanting to do harm. You know, they're advocating things in, in, in the public square that destroys families. They're advocating a lifestyle that leads to destruction. Begin praying for that person. Ask God to change him like he has so many from an enemy into one of his sons or one of his daughters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, give thanks for this uh, passage, for your word as it uh, uh, speaks uh, uh, without error to us. And it speaks to us uh, especially about you and your relationship with your people. And we don't have to fear because you are in control. You're directing what is going on in human history. You've been doing that all the way along whether it be a, a man as famous as Alexander the Great or the, the Maccabees or people living today. All is being done so that your son is glorified, that you are honored and exalted. Help us to, to see that, your greatness, and to be trusting that we don't need to fear what mortal men would do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.